Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global biodiversity trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we leverage science and technology to protect endangered species and ecosystems around the world. This past spring, we kicked off the NatureServe Network Van Tour, or as I like to call it, the Van Humboldt Tour of American Biodiversity, an expedition highlighting how NatureServe works to conserve and sustain biodiversity through the use of technology, collaborative science, and local expertise. I've been journeying across the United States and Canada in my trusty camper van, which I've named the Van Humboldt, in honor of naturalist and explorer Alexander Von Humboldt. The Van Humboldt brought me to key ecosystems that support rare and threatened species and to the Natural Heritage Program scientists who study them. The tour provides a unique opportunity to explore the relationship between people and the natural environment, as well as to connect science with local conservation stories about the future of biodiversity conservation throughout North America. For this special end-of-year episode of Conservation Conversations, we're kicking the Van Humboldt into reverse and hearing from several members of the NatureServe Natural Heritage Network, who I met with at stops on the Van Tour. Today's guests will share knowledge about the people and places that we visited and how we can continue to work together to conserve our precious biodiversity. Our first guest is Alabama Natural Heritage Program, Jim Godwin, I had a real blast with Jim in Alabama's Conecuh National Forest, just one stop in the stunning biodiversity of the southeastern United States. Jim, it was great being out there in the field with you and uh, Al Schatz and the rest of the folks from Alabama. Um, it really made me long for my field days myself back when I was doing field work in Costa Rica and Panama and watching you like wade out into the rivers and um, uh, sort of pull the turtles, the, the alligator snapping turtles from the from the humane trap so that we could see them was was just amazing. And it reminds me of what you said when we were there about diversity in Alabama and how some people say it's the you know, it's the Amazon of the United States, but um, you actually have the, the position that it's better than the Amazon, shall we say. Yeah, the I think some of the aquatic diversity of the of, of Alabama is being promoted as America's Amazon, and yes, I do kind of see that as I think it kind of takes away from what we really have. That you know, so much of this is focused in the Mobile River Basin, which drains most of Alabama uh, and bits of Georgia and Tennessee. But the Mobile River Basin is aquatically is globally very important, and in some regards exceeds that of the Amazon. Uh, I mean, when we look at freshwater turtle diversity, uh, the southeastern United States and particularly Alabama is one of the global hotspots in, in, in some measures greater than many of the countries in South America. Uh, and then when we extend that to freshwater mussels, uh, again, Alabama and the Mobile River Basin and and the southeastern United States, because we're talking about some of the other river systems in here also, Tennessee River System, uh, some of the coastal river systems also. Uh, uh, like the uh, Alabama is the global hotspot for freshwater mussels. Uh, but then when we look at crayfish, uh, Alabama has almost 100 species of crayfish. And that is, again, the global hotspot. Uh, and so I think, you know, when we're talking about 
when we're trying to put labels on these things to attract people's attention and we use something like America's Amazon, I see this as actually kind of detracting from the overall importance of what we have here and that we could we could give it our own label to set it apart if we wanted to. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think about 100 species of crayfish because um, I think probably most people don't realize there's even 100 species, much less 100 right. in Alabama. Um, yes. And that was one of the things that um, I really enjoyed uh, in what you were just saying is how much pride states take in the diversity within their borders. Mm-hmm. And it's been one of the things that's been a consistent theme on the van tour is the states finding the things that make their state the most biodiverse or the most interesting in terms of biodiversity in one way or another. So I, I really appreciate yeah. you bringing that up here. But I think what we need to avoid is that it's a competition because biodiversity is important no matter what it is and where it is and, and how the numbers fall out. That is exactly right. And of course, biodiversity doesn't pay any attention to state boundaries. No, no, they that's don't. one okay. of the great things about the NatureServe network is that we don't pay attention to state boundaries either in terms of the way we aggregate all of the data so that we can say this is happening in Alabama and this is happening in Georgia. And this is important because we can see the, the, the sort of cross border relevancy of right. things that are happening biologically. Um, and speaking of cross-border biological things, and another thing that I saw a lot when I was traveling in the Southeast was the use of prescribed fire and how yes. important that is for maintaining biodiversity and maintaining especially um, some of the rare species that we see mm-hmm. in these uh, longleaf uh, pine forests. So talk a little bit about that because I, I just love the story of fire. Yeah, pres- yeah, so prescribed fire is, and of course with the Heritage Program, we don't actively use fire, but we, we interact with agencies and, and other groups that do use prescribed fire as an ecological tool. And it's important for the longleaf pine ecosystem, which has declined dramatically across the Southeast United States. Uh, I think the you know, numbers that you see out there is that only perhaps 3% of the original longleaf pine ecosystem is still in existence. And, you know, and it's, a, it's a pyrogenic plant community, and so it requires fire. And the way that, that it's important for one of, one of our projects is that we've been involved with uh, an Eastern Indigo Snake reintroduction project in South Alabama for about 15 years. Our heritage program has been in the lead with this and working with the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources and the US, Fish, uh, US Forest Service. And it's the Forest Service that really uh, implements the fire on the ground. And uh, the you know, the, the use of fire as an ecological tool, it changes the shape of the plant community. And you know, what's important for the indigo snake is that it, it tends to keep open the, the tree canopy. It reduces the shrub layer. It encourages this grassy uh, form and, and, and ground layer. And that's important to the gopher tortoise. And, uh, and so it promotes this, you know, the uh, what the gopher tortoise needs as far as uh, uh, ecological requirements for food and, and openness. And of course, the gopher tortoise uh, constructs these long burrows. Well, the connection with the indigo snake is that the indigo snake as a, as a group is, is really tropical. And so we've got the eastern indigo snake here in kind of the northern limit. And in the winters, the indigo snakes utilize gopher tortoise burrows. Uh, 
for a refugia and it concentrates males and females in the winter when they come into contact and then are breeding. And so right now, here it is December and indigo snakes in South Alabama and Georgia and Florida are actually coming together and breeding, which is unusual for most snake species. Sure, but also thinking about the gopher tortoise, um, I remember someone saying that something like 242 species depend on gopher tortoise burrows in one form or another. This is from insects up to the indigo snakes and, and all sorts of things in terms of their life cycles. And so the fire helps the gopher tortoise, which helps all of these other species in addition to things that don't depend on the gopher tortoise, like the, the woodpeckers. And so it's a, it's a really amazing story and it's a really powerful tool that uh, we have in terms of managing ecosystems, uh, not just in these longleaf pine forests, but in um, forests all across the East. Right. Yes. My conversation with Jim touched on the immense biodiversity that the Southeast offers, as well as some of the measures people are taking to preserve it. The next two conversations are from our friends in the Northeastern United States. I talked to Tim Howard, Director of Science for the New York Natural Heritage Program, about monitoring at-risk species in the High Peaks Wilderness in the Adirondack Mountains of New York. Tim, during our hike up the Brothers, uh, you kept your eyes out for some rare species that you said were in need of documentation. Um, and we ended up coming up across a couple of those species, the purple crowberry and also the black crowberry and trailing club moths. Um, of course, these are species that most people haven't even heard of. So I want to know like, what's special about them and also why do we need to document them? Yeah, that's a, those are really good questions. Um, well, the purple crowberry is 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 critically imperiled in New York State. It's really rare. We only find it on the high alpine summits, and um, and then from New York, it's 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 present in the alpine summits in in um, in New Hampshire and Maine as well. And so it's 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 at its really southern part of a range, and it's more common in in Canada, and the the. Um, the um, lycopodium or diphasiastrum or um, ground cedar is also a northern plant that barely makes it into the states and New York is one of the places where it makes it into so it's imperiled in New York as well but more common globally so we care about these because they're they're very very uncommon in New York state and we're interested in species that are um, that are at that position we want to track them we want to want to see how they're doing uh, we had a lead, um, basically a citizen science report of the purple crowberry on the brothers. And so we really, because it's so uncommon, we really wanted to check up on that and make sure and, and confirm that it was there and count, you know, and, and see how much of it was there. The, the, um, the other species, the lycopodium or diphasiastrum um, complinatum, if we want to um, get the scientific name, was last seen and last documented by us in the 90s, so almost 30 years ago. And so we really wanted to go back and see how it's doing, check up on it. So this was the first time that anybody had confirmed that that species was still in New York State in 30 years? Uh, in, in this location in New York this State. So this was a specific location that we knew about, but we hadn't revisited before. So we have other spots for it um, in New York State, but this was a this was a spot we hadn't checked up on in a while. And the, uh, the crowberry, as you were saying, it's more common further north, but the, um, was, 
was there something unusual about us finding it where we did, other than it's at the southern end of its range? Right. So that was an interesting twist in that we went, we hiked up the Brothers, and these are sort of shoulders or sub-summits to, to a larger peak. And um, the place we ended up in was this sort of this rounded, rocky knoll with a lot of bare bedrock and patches of trees and patches of stunted trees and vegetation. In our New York community classification, we'd call that a spruce for a rocky summit. And, um, and it's a lower elevation than the other places for which we know purple crowberry to, to occur. And so that was an interesting twist. It's like an outlier. And uh, we would, didn't, wouldn't have expected to find it there. But there it was in all its glory, these big, big, healthy patches. And I wandered around a little more and found, I think, four or five other patches of the plant in this Spruce for Rocky Summit community. And that makes it some, A, a pretty healthy population, and B, a sort of interesting and unique outlier that we need to research more. Like, why is purple crowberry at this lower elevation station when we're used to it being at really only the highest, most exposed alpine summits in New York? So that was an interesting find. Uh, that's that's going to be a fun mystery for you to work on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. uh, so these two species are both very small, like they're almost, they're basically ground cover. And there are long trails that people hike on in the Adirondack Mountains. And uh, the New York Natural Heritage Program works with several community partner organizations like the Adirondack Mountain Club to educate hikers about staying on trails and the importance of, of that. Um, I'm just sort of thinking about, you know, in this situation, it would be very easy to tread on a, an imperiled species and do real damage to the biota of New York State. And so what, do you, what is your advice and how do you talk to people about, you know, when you're hiking, we want people in nature. We want people experiencing this, but we also want to protect the amazing biodiversity that we have. Right, exactly. And I mean, all more reason for this, for this, the leave no trace ethic, which is really try to walk on durable surfaces. And, and durable surfaces means, you know, rock on the rock rather than on the vegetation. No matter what you know about the vegetation, you might think, oh, that's a weed because it's growing on the trail side. But lo and behold, this purple crowberry was creeping out onto the bedrock where you might normally walk. And so that's a, those are really good reasons. And you might not notice or not, or understand that the, some of these species are uncommon or less found. Um, you're exactly right about that collaboration with the Adirondack Mountain Club. They have a fabulous summit steward program where they send um, interns and summer employees up on the summits to educate and reach out to people to communicate that message Leave, uh, leave no trace, please try to walk on the durable surfaces on the, on the bedrock. And that really helps support our biodiversity and, and our natural systems and our ecosystems. You know, as a side note to what you're talking about with weeds, when I was in New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, two of the imperiled species that we saw were uh, grasses, you know, like a crabgrass right. and, a, and a sedge. And right. most people see a grass and they're like, okay, it's grass, I can certainly walk on that. But in fact, they can be globally imperiled species and growing right next to the trail and all the more, all the more reason to stay on trail. Yep, exactly. After chatting with Tim, I caught up with Greg Podnozinski, head of the Pennsylvania Natural Heritage Program in the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources there. Greg shared a few interesting tidbits about our site visit to Ohio Pyle State Park, 
where riverside habitat and vernal pool communities support a wide diversity of plant and animal species that are monitored by natural heritage scientists and protected by the state of Pennsylvania. In Ohio Pile uh, State Park there in Pennsylvania, we went to um, walked along the river there, which is a popular destination for whitewater rafting. But more importantly, from your perspective and mine, is it's a very important habitat for certain very rare species. Um, and I was like, it's in Pennsylvania, we refer to it as a river scour, which is a term that I wasn't familiar with before. But so can you explain what it means for it to be a scour and how that's sure. The river scours refer to zones that are subject to uh, periodic flooding events. And uh, during those events, periods of high flow. Uh, so it depends on the time of the year, what kind of events are happening. So where we went, where it was bare rock, um, in particularly in winter, uh, they're potentially exposed to a lot of ice moving. And so it's that ice moving across the surface of that exposed bedrock that really kind of scours off and prevents any soil development if, uh, if there's any chance of sedimentation occurring. Um, you know, so those high flows re remove all that. So it's an environment that uh, for plants to survive, they're often limited to the cracks and crevices in that environment, which makes it a fairly specialized habitat. Right, and we saw some of those plants. And also, now that I heard the term and had it explained, you see river scour in a lot of places. I see it along the Potomac River and everywhere. Um, sure. But it does mean you get some really interesting species because they have to be sort of tenacious to, to make yeah. it in that habitat. So one of the species we saw was beautiful Barbara's buttons. And uh, that's a species that you all described based on samples from that location. Is that correct? Um, well, I have to give the credit to, to Wes Knapp and, and a few other folks down at UNC. It's uh, the, the, the story is relayed to me is that actually Wes was uh, ran across these while looking at, in an herbarium down in North Carolina and ran across a Marshalia grandifolius folia specimen from uh, North Carolina. And he, of course, he was, has done work in West Virginia and in Pennsylvania. And he said, wait a minute, this doesn't look like Marshalia grandifolia. It doesn't look right. And so he did more investigative work and found out that the specimens that we had up here um, were different species. And so our contribution to all this was is that Wes then said, OK, um, we need new type specimens because you guys have something different. So we collected six Marshalia pulchra, as opposed to grandiflora, from the Ohio Pile uh, State Park from the, the scour there and sent that off to Wes. And those became the six new holotypes for uh, Marshalia pulchra. And I think he, that's so exciting. And it also is one of the things that's cool because it shows the power of the network because you're able to have this kind of communication and, and share the information. Um, it yep. contributes to everybody's knowledge. It's great. So one of the things that was fun on the trip is we also went to look at these vernal pools, which is another uh, habitat type that was right close by in Ohio Pile there. And is also a little bit unusual and, of course, attracts or not attracts, but allows for many unusual species. So tell yeah. us a little bit about vernal pools and what was special there. So what we what they were looking for is a place to create a vernal pool, something that has that sort of ephemeral hydrology you know, that is wet for in the springtime very often in the east, dries out by mid late summer, and that characteristic alone helps limit the um, colonization by fish, you know, and makes it a safer habitat for 
amphibians and some of these vernal pool inverts. So at that particular site, um, in terms of the vernal pool, there is a, uh, an old fishing pond there that was spring fed and they had diverted a nearby creek to go into it, but it was like, uh, it had, had been abandoned. Um, it was like a nine foot deep concrete structure, which of limited value to, to the um, vernal pool critters. Right. They try try to use it, but you know it's kind of tough with a nine foot wall. Yeah, and so, a concrete bottom. And a concrete bottom. So they uh, uh, got some funding and and state parks um, uh, threw some resources at it. And so working with some of our heritage staff, worked out a design, and they they broke up that concrete pond, buried a lot of it underneath it, but um, mm. uh, recontoured the site and and created a a new vernal pool. Um, uh, habitat there. So uh, we went to see it a year after they had done it and already, you know, you saw there's a lot of vegetation in there. Um, a little bit overrun by newts, but they're hoping that will change over time and get a little bit other stuff in there. Everybody loves newts. Everybody loves newts, but there's, there is a limit. <laughs> um, so we're going to be monitoring that site and working with the park and uh, hopefully uh, from year to year it'll get better and if we need to we'll do some adjustments. But um, that site's already been known to have like a rare dragonfly uh, oh, utilizing great. it. So, um, yeah, it's one of the things I thought was interesting there was it's a restoration story and it, it shows the importance of managing for endangered species and endangered habitat. And you just can't put a fence around it, right? And assume everything's going to be fine. If you really want to have and attract and make habitat for a rare and endangered species, you need to actively work on that and understand the biology of them so that you can do that. And uh, you guys did a beautiful job of that in that location. My conversations with both Tim and Greg highlighted the importance of scientists taking time to observe species in the field and using the data collected on these species to properly describe them. Up next, I chat with Patrick Henry, Executive Director of NatureServe Canada, about how scientific data is collected and shared between network programs in the United States and Canada to promote biodiversity conservation most effectively in both countries. So uh, the NatureServe network includes, of course, all of the United States as well as Canada and the provinces and territories and um, federal uh, areas there. And so I wanted to talk to Patrick about why it's important that we have the United States and Canada sort of in the same network and um, what's important about the partnership that you have as an organization, NatureServe Canada, with your federal government in Canada? Yeah, so thanks, Sean. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, in terms of the NatureServe network um, and the, the focus of having the Canadian and United States representation there, I mean, that's super critical in terms of ensuring that all the work that, you know, provincial, territorial, state governments do can actually be rolled up and to, and, to, and to have a bigger impact, uh, you know, across borders and so on. So that that's very clear. Uh, in terms of you know the Canadian context, um, certainly you know NatureServe Canada's provincial and territorial CDCs um, are a key part of the network. And like you said, we also have our federal um, partners as well. Uh, just a little bit of background on that. I mean, we we've had CDCs. Uh, the first established, I think, was uh, Quebec in 1988. Um, and Nunavut CDC uh, established in 2016. So we've now got Canadian, all Canadian provinces and territories represented by a conservation data center. 
heritage program is the term in the United States. Um, and Nature Serve Canada uh, was set up as a charitable organization in 1999. So we were, uh, you know, Association for Biodiversity Information, uh, like Nature Serve, yeah. previous to that. And through this whole process, um, you know, we're brought together, um, like I said, the provincial territorial CDCs and the three responsible uh, federal departments uh, into our membership. And those are Environment and Climate Change Canada. Uh, Parks Canada Agency and Fisheries and Oceans Canada. So, I mean, what's critical to recognize there is that our membership has all of the uh, provincial, territorial, and federal agencies related to the Canadian Federal Species at Risk Act. And that's really what drives a lot of the work of NatureServe Canada. Uh, so, for example, the provincial territorial CDC information is, is required uh, for key uh, activities under uh, COSIWIC, for example, the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada. Which and is those, what we would think of as our Endangered Species Act down here. Yes, exactly. And COSIWIC status uh, assessments uh, ultimately feed into listings under the Canadian Federal uh, Species at Risk Act. And so there are a whole slew of provincial, territorial, national and federal biodiversity and species at risk programs that we all collectively are working on together. And so the point is, you know, we could all be working in silos, uh, but through NatureServe Canada, bringing everybody to the table, um, there's a, a sort of a, a, a much more fluid and regular communication on key uh, topics and shared objectives. And then of course, also sharing re uh, resources and so on. Right. So on the van tour, I visited um, Ontario and Quebec, and you came over to uh, go on those two uh, field site visits, which was awesome. Um, and we went to uh, Burnt Lands Provincial Park in Ontario. Um, and then we went over in uh, Quebec to look at some species that are sort of threatened and need to be tracked and managed and talked a lot about, you know, um, how the how climate change and other things are affecting um, the species in Canada, but I'm sort of interested in sort of this big picture, right? So it's easy for people to sort of get focused on their local area, um, but species don't pay any attention to provincial boundaries. In terms of having that sort of bigger picture impact, right? Because we've got, we've got the, you know, the provincial and territorial conservation data centers who are developing their information. Um, you know, NatureServe Canada works with NatureServe to roll up that information into national and global information so that we can have, uh, you know, an impact um, beyond, uh, you know, that sort of subnational level, right? Roll up information, understand what, what's happening national level, understand global and be able to have conversations and programs um, to manage and improve the state of biodiversity. A key objective for us is to get the NatureServe Canada data out uh, to those who need it um, and to not have any obstacles in terms of cost um, or the type of data they can receive through the platform. And, and this, you know, this ultimately will benefit conservation, but it's also, um, you know, very useful for our conservation data centers and for NatureServe Canada in terms of the amount of work effort that we put into managing data requests currently. So, so that's, that's a win-win um, that we're excited um, to see the rollout of uh, NatureServe Explorer Pro in uh, January 6, 2022. Um, I also just mentioned the, 
you know, some other programs that we work with through our membership, for example, the, the general status program. Um, so this is a national program with the provinces, territories, and federal government, and it's all NatureServe Canada members and a, a few others. Um, the, the, the program uses the NatureServe methodology. So in 2013, this, this national program adopted NatureServe methodology um, to do the assessment uh, and, and understand the distribution, distribution of all of Canada's wild species. So not just rare and threatened species. Um, the wild species report uh, that's about to be released, the 2020 report, it'll come out uh, in early 2022. Um, it is going to cover 46,000 species uh, from 47 taxonomic groups. So you can see there's an immense uh, effort um, that to understand uh, Canada's biodiversity. And so ultimately, you know, it takes all of the information from all of our members, from other partners and members of the National General Status Working Group and experts to work together to bring this type of information. Uh, and that's something that uh, Nature of Canada is, you know, certainly very happy to be playing a role in bringing together um, expertise, data, and contributing to that project. Having access to this information wall to wall across all of Canada through an online portal that allows them to um, get the information and use it in decision making is just so important and it's so great that the conservation data centers are so well coordinated by you and by NatureServe Canada to, uh, to provide that information. Thank you for listening to today's special Network Van Tour episode of Conservation Conversations. I enjoyed introducing you to just a few of the people who participated in site visits along the tour by sharing their knowledge about biodiversity conservation across North America. I wish you were out in the field with me and all these amazing ologists, as we call them, the biologists, ecologists, zoologists, and of course botanists, which does not end in ology, but that's okay, to see firsthand the amazing biodiversity right here at home. The Van Humboldt still has a lot more natural heritage to explore, and I invite you to join the ride by checking out natureserve.org slash vantour and following NatureServe on social media. We look forward to future stops along the tour after the new year when I'll be visiting network programs throughout the Western and Midwestern United States, as well as several parts of Canada. And finally, as we wrap up our final podcast of the year, I'd like to take a moment to share how you too can join the effort to conserve our natural heritage. There are several ways to donate to NatureServe's mission to conserve biodiversity, including by adopting a species, adopt a plant or an animal of your choice through our Adopt a Species program. I invite you to visit natureserve.org adopt to learn more. Thank you, and on behalf of everyone at NatureServe and all of our network partners, Happy New Year.